0: Good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, page 717 in the Church Bibles, Mark chapter 11. We took a week off, if you would, from past Sunday, and here we are back in um, the text we've been working through for quite a while now. All right. Mark chapter 11, page 717 in the church Bibles. As they, this would be Jesus, the disciples, and those who were following him, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning and grant us understanding of it. So let's pray, please. Father, we now look to you for everything needed in this moment. and Therefore, we ask that the Holy Spirit will work on our behalf and awaken us to the meaning of this text and that you would use it, use it to change our lives, to pierce our souls, that we may see the full beauty and the authority, and the majesty, and certainly, Father, the supreme worth of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, since you rule this room, please awaken our hearts and open our eyes to see you just as you are. Father, that is what is needed, and that is what we seek. Amen. Well, what we have here is the beginning of the last seven days of the earthly ministry of the most important person who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as I say that, I wonder if you know that just just a bit under 40% of the four Gospels combined are written specifically to tell us of this final week of his life. And if you're thinking, that's no small thing. In fact, we need to pay attention to this because you see, the Bible taught as the Bible is given. It transforms our minds. It matures our ways. It directs our service and it guards us from any kind of personal selectiveness of the scriptures because what it does, it establishes us deep in God's goodness and it points to what is to be the fundamental direction of our life and here's the key it is all rooted in good news, right? The gospel, the good news that Jesus has done for us what we could not and what we would not do for ourselves. And because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, all is well, all is well with God. So in light of that, here's a few things I want us to keep before us as we move through these chapters over these weeks and months. And thinking about his last week of life. And here they are. One, Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem as a helpless victim who's being tossed around like a wet noodle because the religious authorities and the Roman authorities, they prove to be just too much for him. And they outsmart him. No, the gospel writers take great pains to show us Jesus is both Lord and Master, even over his suffering and death. So yes, there was massive injustice. Anyone can see that. Yes, there was gigantic lies and gigantic exaggerations which were being circulated about Jesus' words and his intentions. However, nothing, nothing was happening which was not taking place according to God's plan. Nothing ever does. And every Christian in, in engaged in authentic gospel battle slash ministry, we should take great comfort in that. You see, and this is the second thing I'd like us to keep before us as we, as we move here. We must pay careful attention, especially to a text like this. Because in our familiarity with the story, we might stop being students of the story. And whenever a Christian stops being a student of the Bible, they will cease to learn from the Bible, and they will in time wonder from the God of the Bible. Let me just give you one example. Oftentimes the point is preached in this particular story that the crowds are fickle. And so in this chapter, they're shouting, you know, praises. A few chapters later, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. But you see, when you look at the text carefully, you should say, maybe not. You see, the crowds who are cheering Jesus on, they may not be part of the same crowds who reject him in Jerusalem in front of Pontius Pilate. And this is why. You see this if your Bible's open in verse 11. Jesus won't actually enter into Jerusalem until verse 11. So the group with him shouting Hosanna as he approaches uh, Jerusalem via Bethpage and Bethany are the procession who we learned about in chapter 10 from Jordan and from Jericho. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that that group, they were blind, figuratively speaking, right? They were blind. They are blind to who Jesus really is, and they are blind to what Jesus actually is going into Jerusalem to do. A group which, by the way, included his own disciples, So they're thinking wrongly about Jesus, and they behave badly towards the blind man. In other words, they're blind. So you see the heading that you see in the NIV and a lot of other uh, translations, the triumphal entry. It might be better written, the triumphal procession. Because again, Jesus does not enter Jerusalem in the first 10 verses. He won't until verse 11. The gospel records, all of them, they paint the exact same picture. And it's interesting that we have no indication that the crowds... Stay with him when he gets there, verse 11, into Jerusalem. Just Jesus and the 12. Third thing I'd like to keep before us. The irony of all these events leading up to Jesus' rejection in Jerusalem is that that rejection is the key event in history leading to the salvation of sinners. Right? Sinners like you and me. So whether or not the crowds in Mark 11, they say, you know, yay, Jesus, are not part of the same crowd who are in Jerusalem who are going crucify him. Regardless, they both have a wrong view of Jesus. The crowd shouting his praise think he's there to become king, an earthly king. They're wrong. The crowd shouting, shouting crucify, they're simply being human. They're fallen. And what we need to know is God's purpose and God's plan are being completely and utterly worked out, even in all that mess. Listen to your Bible, uh, Acts 2, 223. Peter's preaching Pentecost about the crucifixion. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, this is the apex of what they meant, what they meant for evil, God meant for good, the salvation of men and women. Therefore, loved ones, and here's what I want you to do. If you need to think better, think better. Expand your mind. Get past ourselves. And get past all the uh, smooth, living, smooth, praying, thinking. Right? Please, God, make everything smooth. As if smooth always and only means God is in it. So if everything's smooth, then that must mean God is in it. Listen, I understand smooth prayers. I like smooth prayers. I pray them for me sometimes. Honestly, I pray them for you most of the time. But here, in the last week of Jesus' life, on the human level, the only thing going smoothly was that diabolical, hellish plan of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You combine them with the Romans and the Herodians, right? They haven't been together for never, and now they're together to have Jesus crucified. Now, that plan from the human perspective, was going absolutely smoothly, very smoothly, tremendously efficient in their murder of Jesus. And, you know, after it was all done, when he was taken down from the cross, in my mind, I see some of them in a smoke-filled room going, we did it again, guys. We're so awesome, plan one and step two and step three. It went so smoothly. And now Jesus is gone. So you need to keep that before you. God is at work in the rough stuff the unfair stuff the the stuff that is unjust which may come to us therefore listen to your bible ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 14 when times are good be happy when times are bad consider this god has made the one as well as the other 2 timothy 3:12 everyone who wants to live a godly life in christ jesus won't always have it smooth they'll be persecuted in other words don't be fooled by smooth. Fourth, the unspeakable importance of all these events leading Jesus to the cross, his death and resurrection, they are what grounds the Christian and deep in gospel certainties. I want you to get this because you see, whatever the deeper truths are, what they are is old basic truth that are better understood. Get that? Deep truths, whatever they are, are simply old basic truths better understood. So they're not like luxuries for special force Christianity, whatever that is, right? They are necessities for every Christian, loved ones. The conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living, living, that's a biblical conviction. And it's one of the most important mechanisms of true and meaningful growth in the Christian life. In other words, if our doctrine is squirrely, our lives will be squirrely. As we live them before God and man if biblical doctrine is is not our meat and drink so they don't matter to us then what will happen is what Paul warned the Colossian church will happen this is what he said Colossians 2 verse 8 we will be following no more than basic human traditions and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ you understand that it's, it's forgive me but it's so simple so if everything's going good that means God really, really likes us and if things are bad what did we do wrong? you got to get past that. Way past that. And two of the doctrines, in the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those are the crown jewels for the believer. Because without those two things, we have nothing solid beneath us. I mean, without the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we're doomed, right? So without it, justification doesn't mean a flip. Adoption, nothing. Communion, what's the use? The church, why? Prayer, are you kidding me? Eternal life with God? And all kinds of things. They would mean nothing. Which is why much of the intent in this passion section is meant. It's written to keep our eyes on Jesus. There won't be a whole lot of application through the story, right? But the one thing we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. He's everything. Look, look how loving he is. I can't believe they're doing that to him. And he's responding in the way that he does. Look what he's enduring for us. Look how he's doing everything well. Pay attention to his words. And look at all that wickedness. And Jesus is just swallowing it all up so that he can get to the cross, die for our sins, that we then by his grace can enjoy a right standing with God. And here's the key. We can enjoy a right standing with God just as we are. (sighs) See, just as we are. So the gospel, when it's properly understood, is like steel chains, iron bars. Its promises are not fickle. They are for you. Jesus would say, take and enjoy them. Which makes the kind of moralistic, try harder, do better, here's how preaching. Which keeps primarily our eyes on ourselves. and makes it kind of creepy in my mind in comparison uh, when Jesus would say the life is which never forgets itself, that's a poor life. The life which never forgets itself, it always has to have its eyes on ourselves, is a poor life. It's a dead life. Therefore, the gospel writers, the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the gospels, take great pains, take a whole lot of space to tell us the details of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Five. Again, the crowds, the crowds of people, both the procession on the journey and the crowds in Jerusalem, right? Because the former are cheering, they have confused, misguided notions. They're calling for his death because, yeah, the latter group, excuse me, is calling for his death, right? Two different groups, two different things. But here's the thing. When we get to these sections, we have to see ourselves in both of them. Because that's what the Bible tells us. The world and our hearts are filled with that kind of vacillation and misguided notions. One minute we're for God, the other we're against him. It's called sin. One moment we think rightly about God, the other wrongly about God. It's called sin. We're going to sing the song at the end, and I'm glad we are, but the verse which I want you to take to heart is this. Behold the man upon the cross. That's how deep the Father's love. Behold the man upon a cross, My sin upon his shoulders. Okay, I believe most of us understand that. Here's the part. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And you see, we mock the Lord Jesus Christ every time we sin, don't we? Therefore, our only hope in life and death is not that somehow we'll stop sinning. Not in this body. No, our only hope in life and death is Jesus. Therefore, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Sixth, and the final thing I'd ask to keep before us as we move through these final chapters is to let these texts, let's let these chapters save us from any kind of exaggerated sentimentalism or moralism or skepticism, right? So, sentimentalism. Oh, that poor Jesus. Oh, that poor man, you know. And so, we feel good about feeling sad for Jesus. Listen carefully. From the cross, Jesus is quoting Scripture, Okay. From the cross, he's arranging his mother's retirement plan, right? From the cross, he's forgiving people from the cross. He's sending a man to paradise. and the one time, the one time that he shouts in agony, where you would be tempted to have a little bit of sympathy for Jesus, he's shouting in agony to the Father, is because of our sin. Because of our sin. So be careful with the sentimentalism and also with the moralism, right? Because sometimes even in a sermon like this, and sometimes especially in the Psalms, right, about praise and worship, well, can't you see the, the sermon goes like this? The people are cheering Jesus really loud. Why can't you guys cheer Jesus really loud, right? So go home and feel guilty that you're not cheering Jesus on really loud. Or go home and watch ESPN. Do you ever watch this, the collegiate cheerleading finals? Holy cow, that's a whole lot of like cheering energy. Maybe we could learn a thing or two. I don't know. That's not why it's there. Sentimentalism, moralism, and finally, (coughs) excuse me, perhaps, hopefully, somebody's here and you're a skeptic. And you're like, you know what? I'm not sure what is going on here is actually true history. And I don't know why you guys pay so much attention to it. Or on the other end of that, listen, this is the one millionth time I've heard about the triumphal entry. Do I have to go through this again? You see? So, there they are. And I want you, please, to do your best to keep these things before you. I'm sure I'll repeat them again because they're important. Now, to the text, chapter 11. Here's the one question that I came to. It's the first point on the, on the worship folder. What's going on here? What's going on here? Because as I alluded to, many of us are familiar with this account and all the pageantry of it all. But, but familiarity not only breeds contempt, It also sometimes breeds with it a removal of the ability to ask needed questions. So what I tried to do is I tried to go to this text like this was the first time I ever read it and I wrote down some questions and this is the one question I had. What's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? This is one of the few times, if not the only time, at least in this way, where Jesus appears to drop his private character and he calls public attention to himself. I mean any honest reader would have to say that why is he doing that? His actions here are very deliberate, right? So why is he orchestrating this triumphal procession into Jerusalem? And I want you to keep in mind that those actively involved in Christian apologetics and scholars, they always tell us that there are like 1200 prophecies in the Old Testament, predictions having to do with the Messiah which were clearly fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, okay? However, what is unique here is that we find Jesus going out of his way to orchestrate the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Let me just think with me. Jesus himself didn't do anything extraordinary to make sure he was born in Bethlehem, right? God the Father planned it. The Holy Spirit placed him in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. And then Caesar's decree, right? People should go back to their towns of their birth in order to be enrolled for reasons of taxation. And so all those things ordered the events of the birth of Jesus Christ. So as a baby, in his humanity, excuse me, Jesus knew nothing of this decree. He, he didn't, you know, know anything of his birth. He, he did nothing to purposely fulfill the prophecies and the circumstances of his birth. However, here as an adult, Jesus takes matters in his own hand. He's very much aware of the prophecy that Noel read for us from Zechariah 9.9. It's quoted in Matthew's gospel. It's quoted in John's gospel. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter, see your king has come to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus knew the text. He knew the prophecy. And Jesus is setting things up so that all the details of that prophecy are filled completely and precisely as was spoken, what, hundreds of years ago. And you'll see that if your Bible's open. Verse 1, they approached Jerusalem. They came to Bethpage, which means a house of unripe figs. And Bethany, house of sorrow, a lot of symbolism there. And they're at the Mount of Olives there, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Jesus sent two of his disciples, say to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, right? He continues. If there's any trouble in the, in the transaction there, Jesus, verse three, if someone says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. And what you see there is divine sovereignty, right? The colt is actually found, just like Jesus said, the fowl uh, of a beast of burden and equus. Equus asinus. That's the, that's the scientific name for the beast of burden. It's a domestic member of the of the horse family, hence the term colt, chosen by most translators instead of donkey, right? Which you see in the pictures and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is saying, right, divine sovereignty, verse four A, it's there. Human responsibility. Verse 4B, they untie it. The people say, hey, hey, what's going on? Verse 5, what are you doing untying the coal? And they answer just as they were told. It's always, always wise to obey Jesus, to do what he says to do. And verse 6, they do. And then verse 7, they actually say what he says, which is always wise to do as well. And the people let them go. Now, again, why all this extensive activity, which is preparing for the public presentation of the fulfillment of this prophecy, Okay. Because you would have to admit there's a lot of cleverness here on Jesus' part. There's a bit of shrewdness. So why is he doing this? Well, here's the answer. Let me, I'm sorry, let me just get another drink of water. <coughs> All right, hopefully that will help. The reason why Jesus is doing that it, it has to do with the kingdom of God. And I want you to pay attention, the kingdom of God. You may remember at the very beginning of Mark, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus said the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And that's what he was saying, the entry point into the kingdom of God, which is near, calls on a person to repent and believe the good news. And from that day on, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he was revealing that the kingdom of God was all over his ministry, right? His power displayed it. The mercy that Jesus gave revealed it many of the parables told of it and his preaching pointed to the kingdom of God good news this is what he would say good news you're sinners well it sounds like bad news but wait a second you're sinners you can't fix yourself you can't even maintain yourself so you need a savior a king to rescue you from your past sins and your present sins and your future sins and it will bring you into a whole new realm you mean like a kingdom yeah like a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And add to that that Jesus also knew as he orchestrates this, there was going to be a whole lot of people that were expecting the kingdom of God immediately. And by the way, scholars tell us that they can say that with good accuracy that at the time of this Passover, there was probably at least 2 million people who would be in Jerusalem at that time in those days. Here's how they came up with that number. It's, a little, it's kind of interesting. A while back, they found this document that was dated 40 A.D., and the document was a calculation of the resources used for the Passover. And one of the things they found is that for this Passover in the year 48 A.D., which is removed a few years past this event, 260,000 lambs were slain during that year's Passover. Think of that. Over a quarter of a million lambs were slain for sin which Jesus already atoned for. I mean, what a waste. But that kind of happens today, right? Not with lambs, but with works. We do bad and say, "I'm going to make it up by works. We do bad. I'm going to make it up by gifts. We do bad. I'm going to make it up by deeds. Maybe a few superstitious notions. happens all the time. But here, the scholars say the ratio from lamb to sacre, or from lamb to people was one to 10. So one lamb per 10 people were sacrificed, and that's when they come up with that number of roughly 2 million people in Jerusalem at that time. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to put it all together in your mind. Piece together the mind of Christ here, which is pointing to this idea of kingdom, and who the kingdom, king of that kingdom is, and it's near, and Jesus is saying, in this procession, oh, I am the king, I am the king, and I'm headed to my throne. If you like, Jesus is throwing a party for himself, right? He's probably the only one that could pull that off and be justified, right? He's going to throw a party for himself, and he's orchestrating in his, his coordination. One last thing. If you dig a little bit deeper in your Bibles, you'll know that Zechariah's prophecy wasn't the only time that this was spoken of. Actually, it was spoken of in the first book of the Bible, chapter 49, verse 10. And this is what it says. Jacob is blessing his family. And Jacob is speaking prophetically. And this is what he says. The scepter. That would be the rod of authority right, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, the king's staff, from between his feet until, okay, until what? Until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, and then it goes on to say, his borders will be to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to think just for a minute imagine you're a parent, you're reading the Bible to your kids at night, and you read this passage from Genesis. And you're reading carefully, and they're listening carefully, and they have a question, a couple of questions. Of whom is Judah speaking about, right? Who's this person, dad? And when will this person come, mom? Or, or has he come? You see, Good questions. And what Jesus is doing, he's orchestrating purposely to answer to all those questions. Which is why we pay real close attention to our Old Testament. And not just the New Testament. Right? Someone told me a long time ago that the Bible is like a two-act play. If you missed the second act and only stay for the first, you don't know how it ends. If you're late and you only see the second act, then you become a bloody nuisance to people. It's like, who's she? What's he doing? What's the deal with the donkey? This is what we need to know. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is predicting and then declaring that Jesus is the king, the king of kings. Every book in the Old Testament points to this. The Magi, they knew this. It's written in Matthew's gospel. The angels declared it. It was written in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel. In response to Pilate's question, are you a king? Listen to what Jesus says. This is John 18, verse 37. You are right in saying, I am king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Truth, I am God's king sent into God's world. And then Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth. Okay, what truth? Jesus is God's king sent into God's world, and he rules the world, and he rules every Christian's life. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now I want you to listen. And I want you to think. When that day of evil comes to us and all the myriad of ways that it will come and none of us will be exempt from that day or when we fall on our face either privately or publicly losing the battle of indwelling sin. What do you do on that day? Right? Right? And if all you have is some kind of like self-help maxims to deal with it or some kind of like works to deal with it, then you're nothing more than a terrible Rocky Balboa movie, right? And, and there's Rocky in the ring and there's his, whoever the guy's going to fight. Is it Mr. T? Is it Apollo Creed? Is it uh, the big Russian Drago? And so there's the thing and then there's you and you're like, I can take it. Bring it on, right? I can take it. I can take it. And the people look at you and they go, wow, what a man, wow. Well, a lady! Just, just look at all that. Do you want that, or do you want to be honest and go? I can't deal with those things on that day and that way. Not in my own power, but you can stand your ground. And after ev- doing everything, Ephesians six, standing your ground in the full armor of God, the King's armor, and you put on the gospel of God, and you put on the righteousness of Christ, and you stand in the truth of the gospel. And you look at whatever it is, whether it be your sin, the evil one, or horrible people, and you look at them on that day, and you say, it's okay. My king already took care of all of it. I'll be fine. Even if I'm dead, I'll be fine. And then the people go, wow, what a savior that Jesus is. What what a king that is. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? Tells a lot about us, how we answer that. What's going on? Number two, it'll be real short here. How, why did they do that? Well, verse seven, the cloaks over the colt, isn't that for comfort? They were very kind to give Jesus a, a makeshift shadow, a saddle. Secondly, why are they spreading their cloaks on the road? Right? That's the kind of thing that'll get me in trouble at my house. I tried to have a blanket outside in the grass, and my wife's like, you can't take a blanket on the grass. I'm like, just a blanket. Don't do it. A towel, yes. Blanket, no. Okay. Verse 8, branches as well. So what are they doing? Well, the practice of spreading cloaks and garments before royalty, not only is that a Roman practice in that time and that place, 2 Kings 9.13, it was also a Jewish practice. They did the same thing for a king. The branches being spread I looked long and wide. Most scholars say that some Jewish festivals had that kind of participation. And so the cloaks and the branches have precedence is what I'm trying to say. He's royalty. Do nice things. Which point to that? That's second point. Okay, then the last point. Why do they say that, right? Well, verse 9, you see what they're saying there? Hosanna and all that in verse 10. They are saying those things, but they are saying them with a completely wrong understanding. Because the way they understood things as the scene takes place, when they shout, verse 9, Hosanna, which means save us, help us, is such that they are not speaking there of personal salvation as we would understand it. They're not asking Jesus to save them from their sins. They're asking Jesus to save them from Rome, right? They're thinking national restoration. That's verse 10. They're thinking political revolution. Just back in the day, verse 10, when King David, you know, ruled the world, essentially, they're thinking Jesus is going to make their nation great again. He's going to make the temple back and it's going to come back in spades. We're going to have an earthly king with an earthly kingdom, just the way we always wanted it. Hosanna to the highest heaven. And this is what I want you to know. If Jesus followed that line of thought and he hitched his message to that wagon, then he would have not had much well, he would have had much more followers than he finally did, because when he finally makes it to the cross. There's only a handful of people there. And he certainly would have been, would not have been crucified. I mean, why would they crucify him? He's their big hope. He's their big gun. They hate Rome. They don't want to live anymore under the conquered, in a conquered state or as a conquered state. They need a political champion. So if Jesus gave in and said, okay, I'll be the kind of king that you are thinking that I am, and you add with the crowds in the procession, now you add the crowds in Jerusalem you would have had a huge crowd, right? You, you would have really had something. However, what you would not have had, no matter how large the crowd is, you would not have had the truth. And do you understand that? No matter how large the crowd became, in that setting, you would not have the truth. They want Jesus to deliver them from that which he had not come to deliver them from. Fundamental that we understand that. They want Jesus to deliver them from that which he did not come to deliver them from. Same thing sometimes in the life of churches. The only thing that Jesus really cares about is family finance and the future. That's it. Family finance, maybe fitness, food, in future. And so that's where the focus is. John 18.36 Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. This is not a political revolution. If it were, my servants would fight. And remember, at least, at least one occasion after the feeding of the 5,000, we found out that the crowds wanted to make Jesus king then and there. They said, look, if he can feed 5,000 with a sack lunch, then he needs to be our king. And Jesus got out of there quick because he knew that what they thought a king was going to do was not what he had come to do. Their minds are in the wrong place, misguided, and classically, even his own disciples don't get it even after the resurrection. Hence the magnitude of what I'm gonna read from Acts chapter one, right? This is some 40 days past all the times where Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection. And this is what it says. They gathered around him and they asked him, Terrible question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're still thinking nationalistically. In my mind, I have Jesus going, Guys, are you kidding me? I'm about to leave town, guys. And you're still thinking that way? It happens all the time, though, in relationships, in people's understanding of Christ, in people's understanding of the church. They think they know, they have their own preconceived notions, but they're wrong, they're misguided. These people were very confused. Why were they so confused? I'm going to give you one suggestion. They were confused because the way they understood their Bible was completely selective. The way they set up their theology was completely selective. Even even, um, even active in their misunderstanding. They govern the word of God. And they did not let the Word of God govern govern them, okay they govern the Word of God, Hosanna, here comes the king, the nation's going to be great again, and they did not let the Word of God govern them. which takes us finally then to verse eleven. You see, he finally enters Jerusalem, he went into the temple courts, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I like this about Jesus because I kind of do this at times. You go to a place late at night and you just look around. And when you look around at a place, especially a familiar place, sometimes the memories kind of tweak and turn in your head. The last time that Jesus was there was probably when he was 12 years old. He was holding court in the temple, uh, temple with the authorities. He was astonishing them. Remember his depth and breadth of God's word? They just didn't believe it. His mom and dad, they're looking for him. Remember what he said? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? What a strange thing for a 12-year-old boy to say. But he said it. And now he's back in Jerusalem, verse 11. And he's looking around at his father's house. And it is such a mess. It is such a mess. People rule his father's house now. And money, as we'll learn next week, that's the driving force of his father's house. And he's just sitting there looking around. And the wonder of all it all. He wondered. God's purpose for God's temple is not being accomplished. And because God's purpose and God's temple is not being accomplished, God's people, they're going to wonder from God's purpose. And worst of all, they are going to wonder from God's son. So you see, the selectivity of their theology. I mean, externally, religiously, mechanically, yeah, they were doing it all right. But still, in here, it was all wrong. It was all wrong. Three applications and we're done. Very brief. So these are the things that came away from the text. Probably more, but at least three. Number one, be careful. and Don't be naive with people who are really passionate and quote the Bible. Right? So they're really passionate and they quote the Bible and so you automatically think, oh my, it must be right because they're really passionate and they quote the Bible. We learned from the story that they can be wrong. Just like the passionate people who were quoting the Bible in the procession here, they were completely wrong about who Jesus was, why he came, because they were selective and they were defective in their understanding of the Bible. That's the first point. Be careful. Don't be naive with people who are really passionate and quote the Bible. two, the very reason why they were defective and selective uh, is because, and the reason why it ran so deep is because they didn't understand Messiah, which means they didn't understand their sin, which means they didn't understand the gospel. When they heard that Messiah had to go to Jerusalem and die, it didn't fit into their theology, so they tossed it. Right? They only liked, if you would, the victory talk and the everything's gonna be smooth talk. But the suffering talk, they didn't want any of it. So what did they do? Well, they tossed it. And in tossing that, when they saw Jesus wasn't what they thought he should be, they tossed him as well. Pretty easily, they tossed him as well. Third thing, maybe the most important thing, unless we keep the gospel at the very center of our thinking, of our praying and our living, we may very well become more and more like the crowds. Both crowds, right? All juiced up for Jesus, but confused, Wrong actions or totally missing Jesus. So, yeah, we hold to his name, but we redefine his ways. We morph the gospel and the church into something which fits us, fits our understanding, fits our mission, and therein fits our lives so we become our own king. And Jesus is kind of like a paper king, and he's only there really to boost us when things are kind of low. Loved ones, the gospel. Is at the very heart of the entire Bible. The gospel is the story of man putting himself where God is to be in our rebellion and sin, and of God now coming and placing himself in the place where man deserves to be in the place of punishment and sin. And God is so good, He's so good that because of the cross, He gives righteousness by imputation. And not by any kind of self-manufacturing. That's the gospel. Therefore, in this procession, Jesus is revealing this. Now, please listen carefully. Jesus is revealing, I am king. I am king, and I begin my reign from the cross. From the cross. That's the only way it can be. That's the only way it can be. So unless we keep the gospel at the center of our thinking and our living and our praying, we very well may create a Jesus of our own making, a tribal Jesus, which can save no one. Which can save no one. Learn to love the gospel. Learn to live the gospel. Apply it in everything you do. Apply it towards everyone you know or will know, whether they're really good or they're really bad. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus did. And there is no better example than he. Let's pray. Father, will you please guard us from wandering from the gospel. Guard us from not applying the gospel in all things. Guard us from not enjoying the gospel and the fruits of it. Guard us from not living the gospel in some rational, honest way. And keep us as a congregation proclaiming the gospel in service to our King. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen.